I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Donner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. One of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is doing the research before I get to actually interview my guests. Today's guest kind of took that to a new level. I listened to his TED Talk. I listened to his book, Prison Break, on Audible, and I friended him on Facebook and Instagram and watched him on all of his live videos. I also binged YouTube and got to watch him and learn so much. I always say timing is everything. There are no coincidences in life, and everything is always working for me, not to me. While meeting today's guest, Jason Goldberg, encompasses all of those sayings. He is in my life at the exact right timing and for a reason. He doesn't know it, but all I can say is thank you before we even begin our interview. Another quote I live by is the teacher will appear when the student is ready. And mark my words, I am so ready for some Jason Goldberg in my life. Before we get started, let me introduce him and tell you a little bit about his background. Jason Goldberg is an award-winning entrepreneur highly sought-after speaker, and the author of the number one international bestseller, Prison Break. He's had a jam-packed life so far. Now, however, he focuses on blending his signature mix of simple and transformational wisdom, practical business mentorship, and belly-busting humor to help coaches, speakers, and online educators build competition-proof businesses. In everything he pursues, Jason's main goal is to always work toward connecting with someone and making a genuinely positive impact on them. One of his mottos in life is to leave each person he connects to 5% happier or less suffering. I haven't even interviewed him yet, but I am sure much more than 5% happier after learning about this man, and now I get to take it to the next level and share Jason's magic with you which I know for a fact you will leave this episode so much happier and with so many tools to live your life in the direction you want to go and learn his techniques on living with possibility-based thinking. So let's get this party started. Please welcome Jason Goldberg to the show. That was, wow, like I need a moment. That was beautiful and I'm so grateful and I'm so I'm so excited to be here with you. And I loved our, our little conversation that none of you will ever get to hear that happened before we hit record. Uh-huh. And it's just been so beautiful to connect with you even before we started. And I just know this is going to be an incredible conversation. So thank yeah. you so much for everything you said and for everything that you are and who you're being in the world and for inviting me to come play with you. I think this is going to be amazing. Oh, so excited, Jason. When you said yes, and having this podcast, like we talked to before, like just for the last few months, you're, you know, episode 30 when you get to know these people or you ask certain people to 
come on. And you just like every day, please, you know, answer. And when Jason Goldberg said yes, I was like, whoa, this is like, oh my gosh, you really do that. You lit me up. And not only did you light me up that moment, but since I've been binging you and listening and you're really my best friend the last like maybe two weeks, I think it's been, ah, so good. And so exactly like I told you in the introduction, like you're just in the right time in my life where I'm at and what the, the little nuggets that I've learned and taken away from what I've learned from you in the last couple of weeks. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. And that now that you've watched all of this stuff by me and listened to my book and everything else, that makes you and my mother as the only two people who have actually <laughs> done any of that. So thank you. Uh, Linda Goldberg, you have somebody in competition with you now. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's and I, I really, I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, love it. I would, I mean, that book, let alone just listening to each chapter, it, it's just like you're, you're just talking like you're my friend. I'm learning so much. So thank you again. And I guess my uncover your magic, right? And I always look at people and like, where's the magic that I've learned from Jason? But my thing is, is like when you really learned and had that pivotal moment at your job, when you went to order those socks, that's kind of where I want to go because I feel like that was kind of the pinnacle moment of where you kind of started seeing like, whoa, this is really, I have these limiting beliefs that have held me in this prison, right? Yeah. And now look at who I, and now I'm looking at myself in the mirror, but I love that story. Could we go back there and share that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the story you're talking about, this is 2009 with this black mirror of a year. 2009 feels like it was 40 years ago and two weeks <laughs> ago all at the same time. I've, I, I tell people like, it's not even, it's not even October. It's like April 93rd right now is what we're in. Like there's not right. even a real date anymore. But this was 2009, so this is 11 years ago. And this is when I, before I even became an entrepreneur, I left corporate in 2011. So 2009, I was still in my corporate job. I was the director of engineering and operations for a technology consulting firm that was based in Florida. This is when I was still living on the East Coast before I moved to LA. And there was this particular day that you mentioned, that's kind of the first chapter of Prison Break, of when I went to go make this purchase online of socks. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a big sock person. I, I am a sock collector. I actually have too many socks now. I need to slow down on the socks. But I'm a sock collector. I just love funky socks. And I went to go buy these socks on Amazon. And it was like a 60, I think it was like a $60 purchase. It wasn't anything huge. And I was making well over six figures in my corporate job. I was in my late 20s at the time. And I tried to make this purchase and the card got declined. And I tried it again in case maybe I had like fat fingered the number and uh, I typed the number in again and it gets declined again. And for most people, that's probably not a big deal. I mean, it's, it's annoying. It's like frustrating if your card gets declined and you know you have money. But for me, I had such a history my entire life and especially at this point in my life of just being incredibly angry about pretty much anything that didn't go my way. And so I reacted with all of this rage and this anger that, you know, this was being done to me. Like, how dare they decline my card? And, and so I get really pissed off and I like slam my, my chair back into the wall of my office and I storm out in the lobby of my office building and I, I call my bank and I'm like mashing the zero button trying to get a live person. And I finally get somebody on the phone and I'm, I'm like full on like going off on this guy. Like, I'm not like yelling and screaming and cursing, but I'm really holding myself back from doing that because I was so <laughs> pissed off. And I asked the guy, like, why is my car being declined? I'm looking on my account. Like, I have the money in the account. Why was this $60 charge declined? And he does a little bit of research on his computer. And he says, uh, well, Mr. Goldberg, it looks like there were some potentially fraudulent uh, charges on your account. And so we froze your card just to make sure somebody hadn't stolen your card and we're going to use it all over town. 
And so now most people, again, would be like, oh, thank God. Thank you for watching out for me. Thank you for making sure my money is safe. I did not. I got double pissed. I doubled down on my pissed offness. And so, again, I'm getting super pissed off. What do you mean that somebody hacked my account? My card is right here. Nobody stole it. What are you talking about? I said, what were these charges? And it turned out the charges were four fast food restaurants in one day. Mm. And according to the bank, no real person who's using their money legitimately would eat at four fast food restaurants in a single day. That's madness. Hmm. And yet that was my life. And I had been the one who had eaten at four fast food restaurants in one day. So while in my late twenties and in 2009, I had this great job over six figures, you know, the, the house, the car, the quote, perfect relationship, all these things. I was also 332 pounds. Right. And so morbidly obese, 40 something percent body fat, nearly a 40 BMI, really, really dangerously heavy. And then, of course, with all this anger and this depression and this anxiety, I wasn't doing myself any favors. And for whatever reason, that day when they told me that they were cutting me off, like this billion dollar bank said, you are out of control and we're taking away access to your money. Like that's essentially what I heard. (laughs) And for whatever reason, It wasn't like, Ashley, this was the first time I knew I was overweight or the first time I knew I was unhealthy or the first time I knew I had anger issues. Like I wasn't an idiot. I wasn't naive. I knew that all these things were present. But for some reason, when this happened, it was the first time in my adult life that I could actually recall that I could not find somebody else to blame for the situation. I'd gotten so good at living by two mantras. Number one was, that's just the way I am especially if anybody called me out on my anger. That's just, right. that's just the way I am. That's just what I do. That's just the way I am. And the second one was, who can I blame? That was my mantra in life, who can I blame? And for whatever reason, in that moment, I could not find someone to blame. And so I really decided that moment something had to change. I didn't know what. I didn't have this epiphany of like, I need to take personal responsibility and I need to go on the path of personal growth. It was not like that at all. <laughs> it was like, life is effed up. This can't keep going on. This is not sustainable. Look at the response I'm getting from the world for the way that I'm acting and the way that I'm I'm operating my life. I got to find some way to change this. Hmm. So when you were growing up and raised, you were raised by a single mother, correct? Yep. Yep. Single mother, single Jewish mother. Shout out Linda Goldberg. (laughs) And an only child, right? And an only child. Yeah. Okay. So you're raised, what, just eating junk? Like, I mean, I were eating junk food. Yeah, because, you know, because mom, being a single mom, and I mean, this is not just for single moms, this is all moms, for the most part, work pretty damn hard. And her being a single mom and working really hard to make sure that we had a roof over our head and food on the table meant there wasn't a lot of time for her to cook. She also wasn't a big cook. I've always said my mom only makes one thing and it's reservations. But uh, (laughs) but she's just not, she's not really, and she'll say this herself, she's not really a cook. And so there was a lot of pizza, there was a lot of fast food, there was a lot of junk food. And I think what was worse than that, though, actually, I don't think it was the presence of those types of food. I think it was the fact that throughout my entire family, I can probably speak for nearly my entire family, but especially for my mom and I, since we were in the house together, was that food had a direct emotional link to every emotion you could think of. So some people, they're like, when they're depressed, they eat. But for us, it was like, if you're depressed, you eat. If you're sad, you eat. If you're happy, you eat. If you're celebrating, you eat. If you're bored, you eat. If you're stressed. Like, it was everything had an eating connection to the point where, like, in my corporate job, if I knew I had a stressful day coming up at, at that, that consulting job, I would have extra bad foods in the morning. Like, I would get two bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits sandwiches from McDonald's. Huh. And an extra large sweet tea, because it's like if I could just soothe myself and feel like nurtured from the inside out from the food, then it somehow would give me a buffer of protection against the stress of the upcoming day. So that linkage, 
obviously not the healthiest thing in the world. Wow. So even like now I have a 14 year old, you know, and I think the right now that the, they're in school, like half time. So it's not a full on social thing, yeah. but I can imagine going where you just heavy in school, you're heavy and getting just bullied or how do you deal with that? And don't you realize like, gosh, I'm doing the wrong thing. I, something's wrong here. I need to switch. You just didn't get that. Yeah, I didn't get it. And, and my mom tried. I mean, she tried all the bribery in the world to get me to do different things, to be more active, to lose weight. But, you know, and, and again, this is not a slight on her at all. The example wasn't really there. Like she would try for a little while as well, but then not really stick with it. And so, you know, we model kind of what we see. So she tried her best. I was trying my best as far as I knew. And yeah, my experience in school was that, you know, kids, especially teenagers, are not the most loving, compassionate people. They're doing their best. They don't know any better. They're trying to find their way and to fit in and to feel right. loved accepted and all that. But what that meant for me was that I got picked on a lot for being the fat kid. And it it was great in the sense that had I not had that, I don't want to go as far as to call that trauma, but had I not had that experience of being picked on, I don't think I would have developed these two key elements of myself that were used at that point to try to feel enough, but that are now the basis of what I do in the world, which is humor and empathy. And if it wasn't for me really purposefully and intentionally developing humor and empathy to number one, the humor was to, uh, if I could entertain people, there was less of a chance they would make fun of me or pick on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I would get some kind of like love and approval from that. And number two, the empathy part was more for the girls in school because I wasn't a romantic interest for the girls, but I wanted to have a connection with girls. And so I realized like, hey, the one thing that I can do that all these other dudes don't seem to be able to do is actually listen to them. And so I started getting really good at listening and being perceptive and being empathetic. and, And that allowed me to have that kind of connection with women or with girls. And so those two things were things I kind of had to develop just to stay sane and to feel some kind of love and acceptance. But of course, they've, they've played a huge role in who I am now in the world. Huh. So you got married during that time, right? Yep. And, and you're not, not during, married not during high school, not during high school. But when you were heavy, you got yes. married during the, your 20s. But you're not married to her now, correct? No, we got, yeah, we got divorced in, uh, we split up in 2017. And then North Carolina has this really dumb rule. I don't know where, how it is the rest of the country, but you have to be separated for a year before they let you actually get divorced. And it was a really interesting thing. I mean, we were together for 12 years. We met in undergrad in college. So I was 25, she was 22. Uh, And then we were together for 12 years, married for 10 years. And uh, yeah, yeah, so we were together for, for quite a long time. And it was great. There was a lot of healing in that relationship, she was with me again from when I was 332 pounds through to when I lost all the weight. So she was with me that entire time okay. her for things that she needed to process and go through from trauma from her past. And so it was really beautiful, but we kind of grew in different directions. And one of the main things for her was that her, her sexual orientation, did, I won't say it changed. I think she got in touch with what her true sexual orientation was. And oh. so when that came up, I was as supportive as I could be that I wanted her to be who she really was. And as devastating as that was to go through, it needed to happen. And it was a blessing for both of us. Oh, interesting. Well, I remember you talking, I don't know if it was a, in the book or not, but when you said you hit that point where you're in the closet, where you can't find any clothes to wear and she was like, you're, everything was so tight. And I was wondering if that was her or your, your wife right now, but it was her. 
that was her. Yeah, I'm not married now. Yeah, so that was yeah, that okay. was that was my wife. Then yeah, I, I okay. would have these moments like at my highest weight where literally I would be curled up in a ball on the floor in my closet crying because like my clothes just all felt so tight. And you know, this is now it's funny, man. Like nowadays, there's like three percent spandex and everything. So being three hundred and thirty pounds nowadays probably wouldn't be as hard to find clothes. But back then, that wasn't the case. And so putting on you know like suit pants or a suit jacket or whatever and just feeling so restricted and so tight in my body was uh, was a really, really uncomfortable and really sad, a sad way to feel. So you had surgery. Yep. Yep. So I had bariatric surgery in 2011 and did a lot of research on it. You know, I wasn't, I was so hesitant to do it mainly because I was actually worried, like, what if it doesn't work for me? Like, what if I'm the one person that mm-hmm. it doesn't work for? And then of course, doing more and more research, I realized that it, it actually isn't a matter of the surgery working. And it's funny too, there are so many parallels in life in general, whether it's, you know, business or anything else the surgery is a tool. If you don't use the tool properly, then the tool doesn't work. It's the tool doesn't work on its own. If I have a piece of Ikea furniture to put together and I have a screwdriver in front of me, me sitting there and oming does not make the (laughs) screwdriver get up and float over and put together the, the, the furniture. I have to use the tool properly. And so once I really realized that it became a matter of, okay, like if I'm really going to double down on personal responsibility or what I, what I now call self leadership from the book, how am I going to use the tool? Right? How am I going to make sure that I use the tool, that I milk the tool for everything that it's worth? And so I was very, very sincere in having that surgery in 2011, losing 130 pounds, keeping it off now for, you know, for nine years, and remembering going back after the surgery with a group of people, because we kind of all had the surgery done around the same time. And there was like a support group, and we'd go in for checkups and stuff. And a lot of people were not losing a whole lot of weight. And huh. some of them, they would lose some weight, and they started gaining some of the weight back. And you can gain it all back and then some after you have the surgery. And so I was just kind of very genuinely curiously just asking them, well, like, you know, tell me about what's going on. Like, are you, are you doing the things they tell you to do with the tool? Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of them were just like, um, yeah, kind of, yes, kind of no. And what it really helped me to realize, which you and I both know very well, is that it, it is an inner game first. And if you don't change the approach, the lens through which you see the way you're living life, then no mechanics or tools from the outside in are going to change your life. Right. No, so true. And, you know, I think of when you get to that point when you were working and you had the sock moment and the bank guy and all that, and that really started opening your eyes to like, wow, I'm really living in this anger. And to look at you now and to see the progress of how many years, that's not, it hasn't been that long. Yeah. I mean, 2009, yeah. 11 years ago. Yeah. My daughter's 11. She was born in 2008. So you think of just that short period of time of where you are today and your mindset. And I can't even put anger in, in your even existence. You know, now that word, I couldn't even use that in anything. Yeah. And I still feel anger. Like, and this is something that I want to be really clear on. I still have the full range of human emotions that for me, you know, transformation when we first start, and I'm sure you can remember this, and I'm sure anybody listening to this that, that has done anything in personal growth can remember this. In the beginning, it is, it's fireworks. It's like, it's like blowing my mind. Wait, wait, that's possible? I can right. do that? Like that's, and that's amazing. And like anything that's a polarity, it's not sustainable. You're not meant to continue to have all the time, everything's blowing your mind and it's fireworks. If you do, that's great. But for most people, that's not something that happens all the time. So while that, that was transformation for me in the beginning, what I call transformation now and what I'm most proud of now is when the window of time between when I am knocked off center and I mm-hmm. come back to center is reduced. 
Yes. So when the anger is for five or 10 minutes instead of five or 10 hours or five or 10 days, that's a win. That's transformation. So I am totally fine with all human emotions. I welcome them. Of course, in the moment, I'm not always like, oh, I'm so happy anger's here. But but (laughs) when I really slow down and get into the stillness of that, I do welcome all of those things. And the way that I try to live, and this is, it's a moment by moment practice. Like I talk about in prison break, it's not an all or nothing. But what I try to live for a moment by moment is to allow everything, happiness, sadness, depression, anxiety, anger, bliss, joy, whatever the thing is, I allow those things to be, and especially the heavier ones, to be without being a nuisance, right? They can be present, but they can also be irrelevant to the experience of life that I'm having day by day. And when I live in that way, it's, it's nice because if I wake up every day with like 10 tokens in my hand and those tokens can be used for like investing in different forms of energy, mm-hmm. I don't want to waste my tokens either trying to believe in or fight away these heavy emotions. I'd much rather invest them in the things of how I want to feel. And right. so if I don't kind of focus all my attention on getting rid of the negative or the, the quote negative things, it just allows me to be in much more of a purposeful state, even if those other things are present. If that right. makes you sense. know, I always talk about triggers, you know, things that trigger, you know, even as a parent, you know, with my kids, like, well, look at what that just made you feel that way. You know, like really acknowledge, like showing like that is going to make me feel so mad, but really like stop and make it, you know, let's, how do we shift that? you know, to like be present and, mo- and in your thoughts, right? Every little thought. I remember listening to something about Steve Chandler. That's one of your mentors, right? Is um, he how you- Mentor, friend, just inspiration. Yeah, he was such a huge catalyst for so much of my transformation. Yeah. Like you're not your thoughts or the, I like the metaphor that you use on the train. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and we, we've all heard this, this term before, like train of thought, like, oh, I lost my train of thought or, or whatever, right? And thoughts are really like that you can look at them as if they are trains. So if you visualize yourself being at a train station, and if you've ever been to an actual train station, there's trains going in both directions on the tracks, and they're constantly leaving and showing up and doing all these things. If all of those trains represent some kind of present feeling experience, some present emotion that you could possibly feel, then the trains being in existence does not mean you are on the train. If I can see the train, I am not the train. Right. If I can see the train, I'm not on the train. And so I can decide which train of thought I get onto. And if I get onto one that is a, a I'm using quote negative just because it's easy for people to understand, let's say uncomfortable or heavy thoughts. If I get onto a train that has a thought that is heavy or uncomfortable, I don't live on that train. I don't get on a train and say, well, I guess I live here now. Like in real life, I don't get on a vehicle and say, this is my new home. Like I'm in it for as long as I need to be in it. And then I can say, oh, that's interesting. I've been riding in this uncomfortable train of thought. I think I'm done with that. And I can get off at the next stop and choose the next train. Right. And say, ah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's what I call the Britney Spears moment. Right? Yes. Like you have this thing and it pops in your head and you take it seriously and you go, oops, I did it again. Like the thought popped in my head. I thought it meant that's who I am. That's who I'm always going to be. I shouldn't be feeling this way. This thing needs to go away. How do I reframe this? How do I get rid of it? And it's just like, oh, or I can just not take it that seriously, not create this big story that it's bad or it's wrong, or I need to get rid of it because all of that just contributes to the resistance to the feeling. Right. You know, you think of what, 60 to 70 thoughts per day, right? There are yeah. Thousand, 60, I mean, that's what I meant, 60 or yeah. 70,000 thoughts yeah. a day. And most of them are the same. <laughs> right. right. They're just remixes. It's like yeah. DJ Khaled remixing the same thoughts over right. and over. 
Yeah. yeah. And to really like, you know, it's such a, people always say, oh, you know, you're so positive and you try to be so positive and all these things, you know, it, are you ever ne-? like, yeah, that's, we're humans, right? We're living here on this planet. We're all humans. If we're going to have negativity, we're going to have sad moments. We're going to have angry moments, but to really be in a place and how you teach people to just be like, okay, that's part of the train. That's not, you know, like really acknowledge and say, oops, I did it again. And it's not that big of a deal, then shift. That's right? it. That's it. That is literally like, you know, with, with personal growth and with people who are like personal growth, you know, coaches or teachers or whatever, a lot of people like to make it complex because then it's maybe easier to sell books and courses. But the thing that I love about the mentors that I've worked with is that there is one fundamental truth that they just keep pointing me back to over and over again. And I love that. I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, I say that as a coach or as a thought leader, or as a, a whatever in this space, that we're actually in the PR business, but PR stands for permission and reminders right? Permission and reminders. I just need once in a while, somebody to give me permission to feel what I need to feel, permission to trust myself to do what I know needs to be done, permission to listen to my heart, permission to listen to my soul, permission to start something or leave something. I feel like I need that permission. I don't actually need it, but sometimes I feel like I need it. And then reminders, like just reminding me of the core essence of what I know to be true for me when life works versus when it feels like life is not working. And so I try to do that for myself and for others as well. Just really simple, fundamental truths. Yeah, I love that. You know, I was thinking, I love Byron Katie and I know you do too. And I really value her wisdom so much. But the interesting story that you talked about, about the snake, that's another way I like to explain. Will you explain that? Because that really does tell people kind of this thinking, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Byron, Byron Katie is just one of the, one of these people that if you ever get a chance to be with her, she's just, God, she's just love. She's just love and sweetness. And mm-hmm. just, I don't even know how to explain it. And she tells this story about walking one day in kind of a, a desert area and she sees a coiled up rattlesnake and she doesn't notice until she's fairly close. And she gets very scared that this rattlesnake is going to attack her and bite her. And she's going to die out here in the desert and nobody's going to find her. Her body's going to decompose and just all the stories start running through her head of how this is how it's going to end. This is the end of her life. And when she slows down for just a second and her mind settles for just a moment, she notices that it's a coiled up piece of rope and -hmm. it's not actually a snake. And the beautiful thing about that is that so many of us have been taught that there's so much work for us to do. Like even by Arcadia, her stuff is called the work and you do worksheets and you do all this stuff. And even that can be a detriment. As much as I love by Arcadia, even that can be a detriment because if we sit there all day filling out worksheets, life just is passing us by. Mm -hmm. And so when we see the truth of the matter, like for example, it's a coiled up piece of rope. If I were in that situation, I thought it was a rattlesnake and then I realized it was a piece of rope. My next action would not be, well, I should probably go get coached around my relationship to ropes because obviously there's something here for me to process and I need to do some work. It's like, no, that can become mental masturbation. Sometimes it's just noticing like, oh, here's the real truth of what's going on. Let me get back to playing the game of life. Right. Oh, yes. So true. You know, I, when you started working with clients and you started to feel like, oh, this is going to be my new career. Did you start with just a few people? How did you start realizing that this is your, the gift that you want to give in this world? This is your passion. Yeah, I was terrified when I started. God, I was so, so terrified. I was excited, but I think I was more terrified because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. What if I can't help people? But the reason I kind of stumbled into coaching was I think a couple fold. Number one, it's kind of like this thing, actually, if you've been to like a 
really dope restaurant. And you guys in San Diego have so many dope restaurants. But like mm-hmm. you've been to one, like a really, really dope restaurant. And there, there's a place, have you been to Nectarine Grove before? Do you know about Nectarine oh. Grove? Okay, so it's amazing. <laughs> Check it out at some point. It's amazing. So I, when I went down to San Diego, I think it's actually in Encinitas. When I went down there and I went to Nectarine Grove, I could not help but tell every single person I met when I left there, just like I'm doing with you now, you have to go to Nectarine Grove. They have paleo this and bulletproof that. And it was just like amazing. Oh, fun. It's so good. And so I, it was that way with me with personal growth. It's like I had these, these shifts, this transformation. I'm like, I got to tell everybody about this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in a like, you need to do this because your life is screwed up. It was more of just like an excited like, oh, have you not heard about this yet? Oh, cool. Do you mind if I tell you about it? And it's like just being really excited to share. And so what I actually didn't realize back then, it took me several years, I think, really, at least a couple of years to realize, is that I actually loved teaching more than coaching. So I'm a teacher who coaches versus, versus being a coach who teaches. Mm-hmm. And that was something I didn't even know was available to me in the beginning. My experience of this was coaching. And so I started the coaching. But yeah, I started, I, my whole thing, the way I started was, and a lot of this is just because of the essence of what Steve Chandler kind of installed in me, is just leading with service. Like service is kind of the essence of everything that he teaches now that I teach. And and it's just, it's such a core thing. And so for me, instead of trying to get clients, when I started, I just asked myself, how can I be of service to as many people as possible? And so Mm -hmm. I would go into Facebook groups and I would, you know, answer people's questions, or I would just celebrate people or encourage them. And I remember there was one, the place that I really started getting my first group of clients is I was in somebody else's uh, program, another coach's program. And there was a Facebook group that was a part of that program. And what I decided to do was, and this was a very conscious, intentional thing, is that I decided, you know, there's a lot of people in these Facebook groups that are trying to poach people and get clients from these Facebook groups. So I said, I'm going to do the opposite. Not only am I going to go in this group and try to answer people's questions and help them, and not only am I going to do that without pitching or trying to talk about what I do as a coach, but I'm also going to point back to as much as possible, making the leader of the program look really, really good. So me sharing like, hey, guys, like, hey, thanks so much for sharing that thing. I can totally see how that would be really challenging. If it helps, one thing that I've tried in the past that's helped me is this. But make sure you go look at the post that the leader of the group just did a couple of days ago, because what he said blew my mind. And And what ended up happening there was I started being seen as somebody who was a giver. And people did start reaching out to me and saying, hey, I'd love to coach with you. Now, integrity is a huge value for me. So I said, I appreciate that. And this is so-and-so's group, so I don't feel okay with that. Let me talk to him first. So I went to him and I said, hey, listen, this is kind of what's happening. People are reaching out to me. He's like, listen, you've provided so much value in this group. You know, I haven't been in the group that much and you've done a great job of keeping people together. If people resonate with you and they want to work with you, let them work with you. And I was like, awesome. And that was where I first started getting clients. Oh, neat. So when you start doing that, are you working at your other job? How are you trans like making this whole transition? Yeah. So coaching was actually my third startup, if you, if you want to call it that. So I left my last corporate job in 2011 and then I had a transportation startup that I started with a couple guys that I met in grad school. So I did my, I did an executive MBA somewhere around that time as well. And so we started this transportation company, executive transportation company, and we had the, like the CEO of Priceline, our, our advisory board, and we were, we were building this really kind of innovative idea. And it was also the time where it's a very resource intensive business. We needed a lot of cash. We raised money, but to really get it to where we needed to go, we needed to raise a lot more and people were very tight on, on investing at that point. So that business lasted for about 18 months before I stepped away. My partners decided to keep going with it. And about six months later, it shut down. But I decided to go back to corporate, which was a huge about face because when you leave 
you know, you have this vision in your, or at least I had this vision in my head that when you leave your corporate job to become an entrepreneur, you like kick down the door and you like flip your desk and you're like, screw you guys, I'm out. And like you leave and you become a huge success and you never turn back. I was not that way. I was very lucky to have an incredible boss in my last corporate job who, when I told him I was leaving, and that's a whole other really crazy story. But when I told him I was leaving, his first response was, what took you so long? Like, I I knew you were going to do this at some point. What took you so long? So he was very supportive. But after that first company failed, I went back to a corporate job, not to that company, but I went back to a, a corporate job, back to my IT roots and my consulting roots. Did that for six months so I could save money again. And then I left and started another company also while I was in grad school that was in partnership with NASA and the space shuttle program. So that was a technology commercialization company. So it was through this entire thing, I was still getting coached. I was still into personal growth. I wasn't really coaching anybody, but I was really into the whole practice. And it was while I was doing the NASA business that I started to kind of play with the coaching on the side and then made the transition in 2013, 2014, full-time into coaching. Oh, neat. Were, are you reading books during this time? Are you going to seminars? Are there reading people books, that you are, who seminar. are your mentors at this time? Yeah. So who are Chandler, the big ones? Yeah. Chandler was the big one then. Chandler and I started working together. I found Chandler in 2013. We started working together in 2014, January, 2014. And I've been working with him ever since. He's still my coach. And we've also collaborated. We created a, a web show called the Not So Serious Life Together, which was super fun. We did like 71 episodes of that. And uh, I teach at his school now. He has a school for coaches and I've taught at his school. And uh, so he was the big one, but I'd say him, Byron Katie, and probably if I had to pick a third, somebody from the three principles community, I would probably say Joe Bailey and Richard Carlson, who wrote a book together called Slowing Down to the Speed of Life, which is an incredible book. And Joe Carlson wrote a series of books called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and It's All Small Stuff, which is- Yeah, I love that. I've read that. Yeah, Yeah, that's so great. So those were kind of my big mentors that I was focused on during that time. But you're being coached. So he's kind of helping you, kind of steering you in this direction. Yep. So I was with Chandler at that point. I was in his, I was in his group program, the one that I came back and ended up teaching at. And I went through that program three times. So it's a six month thing. And I just kept signing back up and it, nothing changed in what we were learning. It was just being in the container of a place like that. And that's, that's kind of how it's how I've designed my programs is what we say about, about our program where we help coaches is that we say it's a science lab and it's an insurance policy, right? So it's a container where you get to like experiment and try new things and like learn new things you never thought of before. And when you go out in the world and it like doesn't work or it blows up in your face, you have the insurance policy of coming back to us and we help you to tweak it and make it your own. So just being in a container where I felt it was safe to experiment was enough reason for me to continue signing up over and over again. I love that. You know, there was something about how he taught you, like, what are you good at in school or what were you bad at, you know, to try to find your actual, your niche or what would, how do you describe that? Yeah. So the way I talk about it, you know, so one of the things that I talk about a lot is when I first started with coaching is that I was trying to figure out what I was going to be known for. Like, what's going to be the thing I can like hang my hat on that I can be better than anybody else. You know, Byron Katie has the work and, you know, everybody has their thing. Like, what's my thing? And for me, that was an an exercise in whatever the opposite of creativity is. I felt so Mm -hmm. restricted and not inspired and heavy and pressure filled and stressed. And it wasn't until I had a reflection actually from, it's funny, this happened like way later than you would think it would. But when I had a reflection from somebody when I was doing a press tour for prison break and I was on all these morning shows, these morning talk shows, 
and I was on uh, Good Day Sacramento was one of my final my final interviews. And the uh, the the anchor on the show that interviewed me a lot like you, he had like read the book and like done the research and being on all these other shows that I had been on these morning shows, some of them they weren't even sure what your name. So Jim Goldenstein, uh, tell us about your book <laughs> Jailbreak. I'm like you, seriously guys. So like a lot right, of them, they just totally. didn't care at all. this guy really cared. Like he was in it. His name is Cody Stark, amazing guy, and he reflected to me after our interview was done and we were laughing and having fun and talking about the book. And when we were done, he was like, I just got to tell you, Jason, there is something about you. Like you just bring so much joy into the room. Like I felt it. My co-anchors felt it. The audio visual people behind the scenes felt it. The people Mm -hmm. in the green room that were the guests felt it. Like everybody felt it. And I had gotten that reflection from people all the time. I'd come off stage from a talk and they'd be like, oh man, I just feel like so much lighter and, and so much more playful and so much more joyful. But my ego wouldn't let me receive that as my zone of genius because my ego needed my intellect to be the core of my zone of genius. Uh. I needed to tell me how smart I was and how mm-hmm. my message was better than anybody else's. So I kept pushing away this thing that was being shoved in my face. And so when he said that, and it really finally landed for me, I realized looking back, you know, the thing that I got in trouble for as a kid and the thing that I got love and approval for, for as a kid, it's not always the same for everybody. For me, it was the same it was performing. It was bringing people levity. It was bringing laughter into the room. It was lightening Mm -hmm. people's spirits. And I was so naive to think that that was not actually my genius zone. Like somebody just emailed me this morning because they had downloaded my free book about building a coaching business. And it talks about your genius zone. And she emailed me. I just saw this right before this interview. And she emailed me and said, oh, my genius zone is, and it was some kind of a noun. It was something that really had nothing to do with her humanity or what she activates or anything else. And I can't wait to write back to her to let her know, like, that's cool that you can do that, but that's definitely not your genius zone. That's a thing that you do, but it's not the thing that you are. And so when I made that transition, I stopped worrying about what I was going to be known for and focus instead on what I was going to be known for activating in other people. What's the feeling I can draw out from other people so that when they leave me, as you were saying in the beginning, my whole goal is to leave everybody I meet with at least 5% more joy than I found them. And when I really anchored into that, that became the fundamental, the butter in the pan, as I call it, that all the other ingredients of whatever dish I decide to cook go on top of. So to me, that's the thing. Look back at what you got in trouble for as a kid and or what you got love and approval for as a kid. You will find your genius zone in that very, very easily. Yes. And, you know, people starting any kind of business, if it's a coaching business or anything, you know, they always are afraid. There's that, you know, self-sabotage thing. And, oh my gosh, what are people going to think about me? It's not perfect. Or, you know, you make that so non-existent. I really felt like, gosh, Jason said, just do it. Like your metaphor or whatever, the one line in the play. Yeah. You know, I love that. Will you share that? Because I think, you know, people always think, you know, I have this one time, this one chance to make this impression. And if it doesn't go right, just forget it and turn the lights off, (laughs) you know? So just that, no biggie, just, it's just my entire life hanging in the balance on this one thing I'm creating. No big deal. It'll be fine. Yeah, no, I, I I mean, I can get into that. That's why I related so much because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, you know, gosh, thank you, Jason, because it's so true. It is that one line instead of looking at it as the one line in the play. What if you had multiple shows and you had... 50 lines in the play, right? So I'm, you tell me that's, I love that analogy. Yeah, no, no, you nailed it. You got it. So it's so funny, Ashley, because we were just talking about permission and reminders. Like 
this was something I had to go back and remind myself of when, as I was starting to launch my new podcast that we were talking about was because I realized I was getting into the one line zone. And so for those of you who haven't read the book, obviously, because we're talking right now and it's in real time and you haven't heard it yet. We're in the future. No, we're in the past. You're in the future. How are things going? Anyways, how was the election? <laughs> Never mind. Don't answer that. Okay. Oh so, my gosh. Right? So, <laughs> so the concept of one line in the play is that if you picture that you have been cast in a stage play, like a Broadway play, let's say, and you have one line to deliver in this play, and it is not just like some background dialogue. It is the most pivotal line in the entire play. It is going to make or break not only the play, but your career and the career of everybody else in the play. Because if you screw it up, then the whole play tanks and nobody ever gets hired again. And if all of that were true, and you're standing off stage right, ready to come on to deliver this line, how do you think you feel, right? What do you feel in your body? What do you feel in your mind? What do you feel in your heart? Likely, it's not in flow, creative, enthusiastic, positive, any of these like nice, beautiful, expansive emotions. No, you're going to be stressed and tight and your butthole is going to be puckered and you're going to be worried and you're going to be anxious. All these things are going to happen. Contrast that with what if you are the star of this play and the star of the play has dialogue on every single line, every single page of the play. If you screw up a line, it's going to sting, right? If you're up on stage and you flub a line, you're going to be like, oh shit, I wish I would have nailed that. But you have another line three seconds later and you're going to be doing that play two times a day, four days a week for the next six weeks. Flubbing a single line means nothing in the grand scheme of this play running its course. And so the more we can really bring that over to what it is we're creating. And another way that I talk about this too is saying, if you knew, like if it was dictated by law, Ashley, this is a brand new law on your mail-in ballot. It's Proposition 947,216. <laughs> and if you bubble in yes and it wins, then it means that you have to create 1,000 mediocre things before you are allowed to create something epic. Yes. What do you think that changes about the way you approach creation if you know you have to create 1,000 mediocre things before you can create something epic? Yes. You're just like, shit, like, let's just build some shit because I want to get through the thousands so I can get to the epic thing. <laughs> right. And what happens is when you're in motion creating those, quote, mundane things, you'll hit epic way before a thousand ever happened. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's just freeing. I get free from that, like freedom. Like we have what? Every day we have 24 hours in here. Like, what can you do? Do one thing, you know? Oh, wait, what is that? JFT. JFT. Yep. JFT, just for today. Just for today. Oh, I'm so glad I brought that up. That reminded me of that. But I love that. JFT. I did that the other day. I'm like, JFT, just for today. What yeah. am I, just for today. And that's and, and on that. the beauty of JFT. And I actually had a student, one of my students in one of my programs that said, I don't think it should be JFT. I think it should be JFTM. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, it's just for this moment. And I'm like, ah, that's even better. Like it's right. not even, even today maybe is too big. Like what if it's just for this moment? Yes. But the whole premise, the whole concept of JFT or JFTM is essentially that we can make micro commitments every day that tomorrow is none of my business. So to plan how I'm going to show up tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day when I'm here in the now is not only diverting my energy and attention, but it sets me up to fail. Another friend of mine, another coach called Michael Neal, who I love, he said something to the effect of, we're really good at eating what's on the plate in front of us, but terrible at eating the food that we're going to eat three days from now, like right now. <laughs> like we can only eat the food that's in front of us. So it's really about saying like, listen, I'm not going to say that I'm going to go to the gym five days a week for the entire year, but just for today, I'm deciding to go to the gym. Tomorrow's none of my effing business. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. 
But then I wake up tomorrow and I say, okay, just for today, I'm going to go to the gym. I don't give a crap about tomorrow. I don't know what's happening tomorrow, but right. just for today, I'm making this decision. So it just chunks down your commitments into micro commitments. So we don't overwhelm ourselves with these unrealistic expectations. Right. You know, when you say I lost 130 pounds or whatever, you know, when you lost all that weight, but you say, no, I lost one pound, right? Every day. Yeah, one, pound you one pound, 130 times. 130 times. Yes. I love that because people get so consumed in this like huge that they just, you know, goal to accomplish. And then they're like, oh, it's too much, too overwhelming. Yeah. Can't do it. Missed it that day. But to know that they could start over the next day and yeah. do it again. And not have any like regrets of the day before because they didn't do it and it's okay. Right. It's totally okay for everybody listening. It is totally okay for whatever's happening is totally okay. But if you need permission or if you feel like you need permission that yesterday happened and it didn't happen the way you maybe ideally wanted it to have happened, you are allowed to no longer carry the burden of yesterday with you. Right. There, is, there is no victory. There is no medal of honor you get for bringing the burden of yesterday into today. I know it feels like that sometimes. It feels like there's some kind of medal of honor that I get because look how much of a burden I can carry. You don't have to do it. It's actually on my phone. I think I still have it on my phone. Yeah. It literally says, are you ready to lay down the burden you've been carrying? Ah, That's the only question. Right. I love that. Another thing before we're ending this, but the way you talk about intuition I love that because I am so about intuition. I'm so about listening to that little voice inside me and really taking that step and trusting. I'm very trusting in that thought. But when you talk about intuition, it's beautiful. Could you expand on that too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, I kind of take the piss a lot in personal growth related stuff just because it's funny. And I think it's funny. And I think it just lightens people up a little bit. So I'll poke a lot of fun at anything that sounds hyper spiritual, but I actually love all the hyper spiritual stuff. Like I think (laughs) I totally believe in intuition. I think, and I actually believe that intuition itself is actually a mix of some kind of magic connection to source and perception, bias, experience. Like, I think there's a lot of things mixed in intuition. I don't think it's pure magic. I think it's magic mixed with some other cool ingredients. Mm -hmm. But I think where we sometimes get in trouble with intuition is that we confuse intuition with ego. Or we confuse, we think that our intuition is speaking. It's not actually our intuition. It's us being in a low mood and not being able to truly illuminate what's possible for ourselves. So in the book, so in Prison Break, I talk about, there's a chapter, and it's actually one of my favorite chapters, that's called Your Intuition is Drunk. And the the metaphor there is if you have, let's say, and I I hope everybody has somebody like this, and if you don't find somebody like this, because we all deserve to have somebody like this, is somebody in your life that you can always go to no matter what's going on in your life, and they will stop everything and be there for you. It could Mm -hmm. be a friend, it could be a colleague, it could be a family member, it could be a coach, it could be whatever it is. But you know, they always have your best interest at heart. They're always there for you. They love you. They want you to succeed and they can hold whatever it is you have going on. And so you go to these people for advice whenever you need advice about something. But let's say one day you go to one of these people for advice and you walk into their house and they're on the floor drunk. They're just like (laughs) David Hasselhoff with the hamburger, like just totally (laughs) obliterated on the floor. And you think that you're going to ask them for some kind of divine guidance. You would never do that. You would look at them on the floor and say, okay, first of all, I'm not asking them for any advice right now. And second of all, actually, I need to be compassionate to them right there. Right now, they're kind of in a low place. Like I need to take care of them to nurture them for a change when they're normally nurturing me. Well, the same thing happens with intuition. 
Sometimes when we're in a low mood or our mind is really sped up or we're continuing to ruminate on and chew and relive and remix all of these like heavy thoughts that tell us we're not enough or who are we to be doing this or we're not cut out for this or what if we don't succeed or whatever other fears come up. When we try to ask for guidance, intuitive guidance from ourselves when we're in that place, it would be the same as asking a drunk mentor for advice. Mm -hmm. So instead, when that happens, when we're trying to find this intuitive advice and all we're getting met with are things that reinforce our fears and our scarcity and our lack, then we want to turn the tables and say, okay, I see what's happening now. You're a little bit drunk. I'm going to help you sober up. I'm just going to be here with you. I'm going to be here for you. What do you need? Do you need a nap? Do you need some water? Do you need some food? Do you need to go for a walk? I'm going to see what I need to bring my intuition back into sobriety. And once it's sober, then I can ask whatever questions I want to ask. And the guidance I'm going to get is going to be way more pure. And it's going to illuminate something that's possible for me instead of making me feel even worse about myself. Yes. Do you find that it's hard for people to like trust their intuition or like, do you have to like, how do you get them to say, you know, when you hear that or it's not drunk, it isn't an illumination moment and really go and take that action. How do you get them to take the action? Yeah. And I think that's a great question. I think one of the challenges there is that if the immediate sense is something's wrong, how do I fix it? Then it's not intuition that's running the show because until I can be okay with feeling whatever I'm feeling, then I'm trying to push through the feeling to find a solution instead of making the problem no longer problematic, which then allows a solution to, to show up all by itself. So what I mean by that is if there's something that's not working, let's say uh, I'm not getting enough clients in my business or something, and I start panicking about not getting enough clients and not making enough money. And from there, I say, okay, all right, intuition, tell me, what should I do? How should I get clients? What kind of post should I put on Facebook? Should I do a webinar? Should I do this? Should I do that? nothing's going to be illuminated. There's so much being sped up in our heads. We can't do anything with it. We can't solve that problem. We need to make the problem of, I don't have any clients or I don't have enough clients. We need to make that no longer problematic. And the way we make it no longer problematic, there's a lot of different ways. One of them is, is prison break questions, which is something that didn't even make it into the book, but it's something that, that we can chat about if you want. But a very simple fundamental way is to ask myself, what is the feeling that I am afraid to feel right now, right? Because mm -hmm. if I was a part of a reality show where every month that I didn't sign any clients, this network gave me a check for 50 grand, I would pray that nobody signed up with me. So it's <laughs> not that nobody's right. signing up with me that's making me panic. It's that I have a fear that nobody signing up with me means I'm not good enough. I'm not cut out for this. I can't make this work. I'm going to be poor. I'm going to be broke. I'm going to let myself down. I'm going to let my family down. And so if I can first start off with really understanding that I don't need to be afraid of that feeling, right? that I can actually speak to that feeling and say, fear, I get that you're here. I see why you're here. It makes logical sense that you're here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid of you. I don't love you. You're not my best friend. I wouldn't invite you to my house to hang out, but I'm not afraid of you anymore. So you're allowed to be here, but just know this whole, like me being afraid of you being here, we're not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that level of relationship to what we're feeling and not fearing the feeling will intuitively then guide us to say, okay, well, since I'm not afraid of feeling that way, I wonder what I might be able to do to connect with some people today that could potentially become clients. Mm -hmm. And it comes from an entirely different energy. And the what to do is much easier when we're focusing on who we're being first. Yes, I love that. And the PBQs that you talk about, 
the yeah. prison break questions. It's along that, right? Those are the PBQs. Yeah, it's along the same lines. And PBQs, I'll just tell you really quickly, because I think it is a really good tool to have in your back pocket. So PBQs are, there's a formula kind of for a PBQ, but there's no like set of PBQs. There are as many PBQs as your creativity will allow you to create. The format of a PBQ is essentially, if I knew, what would I do, right? If I knew X, what would I do? How would I show up different? How would I respond differently? So the first time this ever came up was when I was really afraid about putting out a certain offer for like a group coaching thing. It was my first time I was doing something like this and I was terrified. Like, what if nobody signs up? What if it flops? What if nobody cares? Like, what if it sucks once they do sign up? Like, I had all the things. And so this PBQ came to me because I, and I didn't call it PBQs then. I didn't know. It was just a question that came to me. And it's because I realized that the feeling that I was fearing in that moment was not enoughness right? It Mm -hmm. really came down to not enoughness, which so many of our things kind of go back to not enoughness. Totally. And so I decided instead of trying to solve the problem of what if nobody signs up for the thing, what if I made that no longer problematic? And that's where this question came up. And the question that came up, and this is, this was the first one I ever created. And it's one that I go back to a lot for myself and with clients is if I knew I was unconditionally loved, supported, and accepted, how would I show up in this moment? If I knew that I was 100% loved, supported, and accepted, how would I show up in this moment? And when I really sat with that, like really almost treated it like a meditation, even just for a minute or two, when I really sat with that question, the problem of people signing up or not signing up disappeared because I was no longer attached to fearing the feeling of not enoughness. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. I think that's such a huge tool to really embrace in your life, you know? I mean, you could do that in everything. Yeah. I mean, I teach that to my girls. That would be, you know, that's all, it's all in your mind. It's Um, all the questions that you ask, right? Oh, Jason, this has been such an amazing hour. I appreciate you so much. In my last little Jason magic nugget of the day, (laughs) what would be your one thing that you would say, oh, Ashley, if I could just... Tell the world this one thing that, you know, maybe it's one of your morning rituals or one thing that really stands out in your day that you do just to really change your energy or make things happen or, you know, do something. What would it be? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying before about continuing to point back to like the simple fundamental truth over and over again, because I just, I really love to do that as much as possible. It's really practicing allowing your feelings to be without being a nuisance, like really practicing noticing. And I can give you a quick visualization for this that can be really helpful is if I am driving down the road in my car and I'm the one driving and in the passenger seat is a person, a friend, whatever it is, somebody sitting in the passenger seat and they are the most angry, upset, depressed, fearful, anxious, stressed person in the entire world. It doesn't change the way the car works right? Steering wheel still works the same. Gas and brakes still work the same. No matter what's going on in that passenger seat, doesn't mean I don't feel and see that there's all this stuff. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not reframing it and saying, oh, what a beautiful journey this person. It's just, they're just there. And life, the car operates the same way. So the more that I can recognize that all those feelings being present for me, whenever they're present, don't have to affect the way I play the game of life, 
the quicker, honestly, they go away because they get bored. They're like, you're not going to pay attention to me. You're not going right. to pump me up and, and make me your little dolly that you take everywhere and like brush my hair and, and all. you're not going <laughs> to keep doing that. Fine, then we'll leave. So just really understanding that your emotions can be without being a nuisance. Oh, yeah, I love that. So powerful. Thank you. So you're working on a podcast right now. You're getting yep. ready to launch that. And it's called the... It's called, it's a very long name. It's called the Jason Goldberg is ruining podcasting podcast. And it's super, super fun. We've recorded the first two interviews. We have uh, Will Smith's uh, nutritionist, Will Smith and Julianne Hoff's nutritionist was our first guest. Uh, second guest is an amazing singer songwriter who was a finalist on the uh, NBC show Songland. He wrote a song for John Legend and he's just oh, cool. Yeah, amazing. And we have some other really amazing guests that we're getting lined up. I'm executive producer of American Ninja Warrior and Hell's Kitchen, all the Gordon Ramsay shows. So we're bringing some really awesome people on. But the key in the show is that it's much less about what they do and much more about how they think. So it's not about like, it's not about them being celebrities or doing anything big in the world. It's about how do they actually think that's allowed them to create these things in their world. So, and it's super fun. It's kind of like late night talk show meets podcasting. It's a bit inappropriate at times. It's completely uncensored and it's, uh, it's been really, really fun. Oh, fun. Can't wait for that. You're going to be one of my, well, you're already one of my best friends in my ear all the time. <laughs> now I'm going to be on your podcast and you, and we can find you. I know we can find you on Facebook and Instagram. Yep, absolutely. And Facebook and Instagram. Yep, at the Jason Goldberg. The Jason Goldberg. Pretentious because Jason Goldberg wasn't available. And Ashley, I'll also give you a link if your listeners want to get a free copy of Prison Break. Oh, um, great! Link for that. They can get an audio version, a digital version, or if you're in the states and you pay a few bucks, you can get an actual paperback version. I'll ship to you. Oh, sweet! Take them up on that. I'm <laughs> all about that book, Jason. Amazing. It It really did. It changed. I looked forward to your, I mean, listening to you every day. I went out for my walk and my run this morning. I almost finished it. I mean, that prison break, when you listen to that, when I heard that, you know, met you through, you know, listening to you and then prison break, now understanding the full meaning of prison break and who you are and what you really stand for and the magic that you're allowing people to do by getting out of the prison that they've put themselves in and using all these beautiful tools to remove them from this prison and these, these walls that so many people live in and to just make it easy, right? Life is, life should be easy. I think so. You know, I agree. And fun and funny. Like you, like you just, you were like this whole thing of the humor and the, the easiness of life. And you just have this presence about you that, just makes everyone feel like, oh, Jason, you know, Jason just makes it, I can do that. Why, you know, I can. That's the highest praise you can give me is if people feel like they're able to do things that they thought they weren't able to do, then I am super, super happy. That's the best per se. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And that is exactly you. Thank you. And I'm beyond grateful for you. And I look forward to our continued friendship and that you live in LA and that when I come up to LA, I am definitely connecting with you because, you know, the whole gift of this podcast for me, not, I mean, it's just meeting you, meeting people like you that I know I having an hour conversation, I feel so connected to that. I know when I see you in person, it's like, you're like my best friend. 
Love that. That's the, that is the beauty. That's the beauty of connection and intimacy in general in the world. And especially right now with not having the chance to have as much of that connection and intimacy. I love that you're doing this and, and you, you create this container where people can feel that intimacy with you. So thank you for the way that you've shown up energetically and just the, the heart that you bring to all this and the spirit you bring to all this. It just makes it so easy to connect with you. And you are, you are absolute magic to, I'm sure to anybody that you connect with. So thank oh, you. For who you are. You're so sweet, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. And we will see you soon. I promise when this is over, we can like be in person at these places. Nectarine <laughs> right? Grove. We're going to Nectarine Grove. Oh, for sure. Oh, I'm going there for sure. You're, you need to be their spokesperson. <laughs> be on a commercial. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, always look for the magic.